Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and today we provide another perspective from our recent issue on Afghanistan. Joining us now is Bing West, former Assistant Secretary of Defense in the Reagan administration, as well as a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Bing, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Now, let's start here uh, with the big picture. You take a slightly different approach to Afghanistan than some of your fellow contributors at Strategica, and you write in your piece that – I'm quoting you here – Afghanistan is already an historical American failure, and you say that the heaviest responsibility for that failure lies with the president on whose watch the war started – George W. Bush. Explain that. What did he get wrong? Well, let let, let me preface this by saying that I fought as a Marine in Vietnam, and um, I've written eight books about the wars in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and have spent many years on the ground with our platoons. And the reason I say that the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were failures is that we lost sight of our objective right at the start and never recovered. Why did we go into Afghanistan? We went into Afghanistan to destroy the Al-Qaeda organization that had killed us on 9-11. But instead, in the first month of the war, in December of 2001, when we were on the ground, our general, General Franks, allowed Al-Qaeda to escape into Pakistan. And our president, President Bush, and the Senate and everybody else said, oops, he went across a border. That's the end of it. I'm changing the objective. And we changed the objective from destroying al-Qaeda, a military objective, to nation building on a pile of rocks. And, and we totally lost sight of what we're doing. And we failed to develop Uh, a solid nation on our side in either Iraq or Afghanistan. That's a failure. Now, to that point on nation building, uh, you mentioned this, you talk about this in your piece, and you talk about it as one of the Bush administration's major mistakes. The reason you give is that it was, this is quoting you again, a mission that could not be accomplished at acceptable cost and time to the American public, which is an interesting formulation. You don't say it's impossible. You just said that it could not be done in a way that was was palatable to the American public. So is Afghanistan, in your judgment, just one specific example of the inherent folly of nation building? Or are there times when nation building can be an appropriate exercise for the military and Afghanistan just doesn't happen to be one of them? If we are willing to be colonialists and take over a government – as we were willing to do after World War II in Germany and Japan, and we are willing to stay there 20, 30, 40 years, I believe we can build a nation anywhere we want. But before you undertake that, you have to recognize that you can't turn it over to punks like Maliki and Karzai and become their servants. To claim that on the one hand we're a democracy and will not colonize others, But on the other hand, we will coax, coax people who are 50 and 60 years of age to change their entire character because we're there to help. It's a preposterous notion. And 
looking back, I, I find it astonishing that no one will take responsibility for that. If I told you I'm going to change your character, or if you told me you're going to change my character at 74 years of age and make a different person out of me because you're going to be there with me, I'd snicker. And then if you're willing to give me $100 billion, I'm going to spend that the way I want. Our proposition that without taking control, you can build another country is laughable. And as that played out under the counterinsurgency strategy, that approach, you embedded with platoons in Afghanistan. What, what was the lived experience of the men on the ground? How did they react to that, applying the counterinsurgency strategy to those goals you just described? There is widespread and deep skepticism throughout the Marine Corps and the Army at the level, I'd say now, of those who are 35 years of age and younger toward their superiors. They thought it was a lot of baloney. They thought they were sent out to do something it was impossible for them to do. Living in Afghanistan among costume tribes whom they can't even speak to, who are living in the ninth century, and, and we're going to convert them just by being there? I mean, it, it, was, it is so insane that our generals believe that. Supposing I told you today and we, that, that somebody should go to the tribes in Nevada and go to the Navajos and the Apaches and say, uh, hey, you, you know, you, you've lived here for, we've lived there with you for a couple of hundred years. You speak perfect English, et cetera. Now, I represent the Obama administration. The Obama administration is your kind of administration. So I want you to give up these treaties. You know, they're obsolete now, and, and you come over and you become part of us and you vote just like everybody else. And the chief of the tribe is going to look at you and he's going to say, wait a minute, white man. You made a deal with us, and that's the deal we're staying with. We're not coming over just because you're the Obama administration. So if we cannot convince our own Indian tribes here in the United States, how do we expect to go to the Pashtuns who are a thousand years behind us and in ten years get them to change all their ways because we're there to tell them to do it? The, the, the notion, the absolute notion that our generals had that we could persuade the population to come over to our side was nuts. What do you think, with that in mind, explains the currency then that counterinsurgency – I mean counterinsurgency seemed to be, as you mentioned, A, favored by the generals, B, favored by the political class, and C, treated pretty well in the media. I mean this was – particularly when it was – when the public first became – uh, aware of it with Iraq, it was framed as sort of the intellectually sophisticated way to to fight a war. What do you think explains the uh, currency that it carries with those classes when by your description it, it clearly doesn't have that with the people who are tasked with applying it on the ground? Oh, I mean I think that's quite clear. The power elite in America is left of center and always will be left of center and we are tilting as we – go on throughout our years. But the the faculties loved the idea that the Marine Corps was now going to be a Peace Corps, that uh, we were no longer going to shoot people, that we were going to make lives better for everybody and therefore win a war. I mean, that is just ideal. No one gets hurt and everyone agrees with us. Uh, the, the Harvard University loved that. The first, the only time a military doctrine written down called counterinsurgency was reviewed by the New York Times 
in its Sunday book reviews mm-hmm. by a professor from Harvard. That to- should have told everyone that something is really wrong with our military strategy. Both President Bush and President Obama, you note, set out to defeat the Taliban. And you say in your piece – I'll quote this back to you because it's it's such an arresting formulation. There's no record that any general explained to either president that such a defeat was impossible. Bing West, the Taliban cannot be beaten. Why not? Well, for two reasons. First, because we gave them a sanctuary called Pakistan – that's 1,500 miles long. The sanctuary in Pakistan extends all the way along the border of the Pacific Ocean in the United States and all the way along the border of the Atlantic Ocean in the United States. 1,500 miles. And we gave it to them. And we said we weren't going to go in there. If, if you took the political philosophy out of these generals who went to Harvard and, and Princeton, and you simply said to them as a, as a military man, if I give you a 1,500-mile strategy, can you beat me? And the general would say, of course, of course you can't beat me. You never beat me if you give me that strategy. And the second thing is that the Taliban were woven into the society of the Pashtun tribes that we were trying to get over, to come over to our side. They was us. The, the Taliban were Pashtun. And President Karzai called them his brothers. I mean, th- th- when you look at that and you sort of say, this is insanity. A, a logical country that-, that has rationality believes this fluff they're being given and hangs on for 13 years while Karzai is giving us the finger and telling us that we're terrible people and he's not going to have anything to do with us. We became the servants of mendacious officials in Kabul who didn't give a damn for the Pashtun tribes and the Pashtun tribes didn't give a damn for them. I mean, standing back from the, and just looking at what we were doing and then listening to the rationale of, of our generals, I found to be uh, discouraging. Now, for all the, the flaws that you're pointing out, you're skeptical of nation building and counterinsurgency, whether the Taliban can be beaten. A listener, if they just heard those things in isolation, could be forgiven for assuming with that kind of diagnosis that you'd prefer to wash your hands of the entire affair. And yet you open your piece at Strategica saying you want to keep troops there. You want to keep spending money. Uh, why? Absolutely. I mean, look, I understand counterinsurgency. I fought it. I mean, I, I got a combined action platoon in the ground. I, I know what our troops are really doing. I've been out there with them. I'm an American. I, you tell me, hey, you, you got a screwed up war. I'm going to shrug my shoulders and say, so what? Everybody screws up in life. You know, let's get to the heart of the matter here. We're, we're in this thing to win, not to lose. So I'll tell a general, look, you've screwed up. Now let's unscrew it and, and get on with it. We finally have enough Afghan soldiers that they can muddle through. They're never going to beat the Taliban. They'll figure out their own ways. But I come back to my basic point. Why did we go there? We went there so terrorists wouldn't attack the United States of America. So if you say to me, well, let's just pull the plug. And I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, now you have absolute chaos and you could have some, some guys trying to attack us. The heck with that. Um, I want to keep some Americans there to do the training and to do the killing of the terrorists 
And I'll, I'll continue with a small amount of money, five or seven billion dollars a year. I mean, you can't even find that as a decimal point, point in our budget. And I would feel much more secure doing that. We all make mistakes. I mean, history is 50% mistakes, but that doesn't mean you change who you are or, or how patriotic you are or anything. You, you're open-minded. You say, we screwed up here. We did well there. But let's look out for the interests of the United States of America. And, and our interest is to prevent terrorists from taking over completely in Afghanistan. I don't believe that requires 100,000 Americans to be there. But it, sure, I'd be, I'd be 100% in favor of keeping 10,000 Americans there and about $7 billion a year indefinitely. Okay, fine. that leads to the final question. Assuming that that doesn't happen, assuming that things go roughly according to the plan that the Obama administration has laid out, we're out or largely out of Afghanistan by year's end, the United States ceases major military operations in the country. Two questions that stem from that. One, what do you anticipate the short-term consequences being? Two, when we look back on the war 50 years from now, when the passions of the moment have dissipated, what are we going to be saying about it as a result of that decision? Uh, in the short term, I believe that the Obama administration, and I very much regret saying this, but I believe it's true. The Obama administration is very selfish. They will do the minimum to get them through, and I, it disappoints me tremendously. That having been said, I don't think anything dramatic is going to happen in the short term in Afghanistan. It's a huge country. And to move against the cities requires vehicles. You don't walk to cities over hundreds of miles. Any vehicle that's moving anywhere. Our air is so incredible. Take my word on this. We can find any individual vehicle we want, let alone a whole dozen of them or so, that the Taliban are not going to be able to move on the cities. 50 years from now, 50 years from now, it, 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 Afghanistan will be such a tiny, tiny footnote. It will indicate the foolishness of America at a time when we had riches, thinking we could just expend our riches uh, without thought. We all rushed into this and were willing to have. Do you know that when I was over there, the average meal, the average meal for every soldier was $35. There are lines in cafeterias that are as good as you'll see in the, in the five-star restaurants. Honestly, we, we went overboard for a while because we had so much money and we were profligate. But 50 years from now, historians will recognize that, wow, did we wake up in a hurry because we didn't have the money here at home because we had promised too much. And, and, and historians will write that fighting wars the way we fought them in Afghanistan, we did not repeat. All right. Our guest has been Bing West, former Assistant Secretary of Defense in the Reagan administration and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his piece and those by other members of the group by visiting strategica at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Bing, thanks for joining us. Thank you. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.